Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is one of the freshest minds in sales anywhere on the planet today. His name is Simon Bowen. You may know him as the models guy. Simon, welcome. Pleased to be here. Other side of the world, but happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your background so that we, they can understand where you're coming from? Sure. I grew up in, in technology, electrics and electronics. I guess that's where the, the modeling thing came from. You know, you, you can't see the electrical movement. You've got to draw the circuit. And I guess that's where that first came from. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I left that and worked in a, a corporate environment, executive role, managing sales teams and manufacturing facilities uh, as the 2IC of a large business unit for one of Australia's largest companies. And then left that into a 25-year consulting career in our own business, working on lots of big projects like the, you know, facilitating all the stakeholder engagement of a, of a 60,000-seat sports stadium and how does the Australian military deploy into bases in hot zones overseas and still hire local contractors and all these kinds of challenging questions. More particularly, how do you make a complex sale? Let's say you want to sell $150 million ship that you're going to build for somebody and it's going to take 12 months to make that sale how do you do that so how do you resolve complex issues and that consulting career kind of led to this really it's something I thought everyone must do it just became natural for me to <laughs> do what I learned from the electrical and electronic space and model on paper the complexity of the thing before we actually deal with the real thing and it just well, seemed to be natural that brings me to my first question. What are the blind spots that you consistently see most vendor organizations struggle with? So you, the number one blind spot is the reliance on words. And for a couple of reasons. In spoken language, now only about 11% of the information that we gather from the world around us comes in through the ears. That also counts for written word on paper because when people read written text, they're generally speaking it to themselves in their heads. And so language is, is what I call flat dimensional. And here's the problem with it. It doesn't matter how well I communicate to you. Everything I say is limited by the extent of your vocabulary, not by how clever I am in terms of how I'm expressing it to you. That's a major problem. So if I'm selling a complex product or service and the people that I'm selling to don't have a word in their vocabulary for something I'm trying to communicate, they can't hold on to the idea. And so 83% of the information comes in through the eyes and the eyes are far more emotional than the ears. And so when you draw a model on paper, there's dimensions to that that can't actually be explained in words, yet they still get it. So it's a bit like going to a builder and say, hey, I've got a great idea for a house in my head. Could you build it for me? And the builder would say, don't be stupid. Well, we need a floor plan because yeah. we, we, need, we need to get a multidimensional kind of understanding of this. And then we need elevations. And once we've got a good set of drawings, we can build the thing. And so most complex thought, and in your world and my world, most of the things that people are selling are complex things, are complex sales. You know, I have a model for a complex sale. If you imagine two overlapping circles, one is the seller and one is the buyer. Yeah. If the thing that the seller does needs explanation, it's complex. If the buyer has 
hidden things going on, internal politics, things that they're avoiding and all that, that it's, they're, they're, they have complexity. And so in between those two, you have this complex sale and you can't make a complex sale with more complexity. So if we really want to clarify this, the most complex thought enters the real world. Its first physical existence in the real world is usually a drawing on paper or these days in CAD on a, you know, some sort of diagramming tool or software. And then we take that and we turn it into the real thing. And so, you know, if you're selling an idea, you've got to map that idea to a model so people can understand it. I just, quite some time ago, I created a model for Martin Luther King's speech. Right. And what is the main message of Martin Luther King's speech, would you say, from your memory of it? What's the main message of it? The most memorable bit is I have a dream. Correct. It's about inclusiveness. It's about genuinely treating people with respect. It is all of that. And that's what most people say, including most people in the US that I ask about it, right? But if you read the speech and model it, create a model, and I just use the futures model, the two green line up, he's actually saying... The founding fathers created the con- the constitution and they created a prom- promissory note of a great nation and that we could go up this green line to a wonderful future, the great American dream, but we could also end up on this ring- red line down into the great American chain. And this is about democracy and the test of democracy and will we pass or fail. If we go down the red line, we'll end up in slavery and poverty amongst prosperity and all these sorts of things. If we go up the green line, you know, all men are created equal. It's now 1963, and it's 100 years since the Emancipation Proclamation, and we're still on the red line. Now is the time to decide was his message, and no one remembers that. But his message was now is the time to decide, or we're going to stay on this red line and it gets worse. But he was just speaking in words. Now, he's one of the greatest orators in history, and the key message is lost, which is quite a practical thing. It's 1963, it's 100 years since the Emancipation Proclamation, and now is the time to decide, all of us must decide, are we going to get on the green line and make this thing work? Or if we don't, it will continue to slide downwards. But if we do get on the green line, I have a dream, and then he launches into it (laughs) and he paints out the pathway of the green line. But all people remember is the most emotional part of the oratory. And if you're a salesperson, now the other thing is, how did that change people, actually, right? It didn't challenge anyone. It was his dream. But if you're a salesperson, your job 100% of the time is to create tension for the buyer between this green line heading up into a fantastic space over time or this red line heading downwards into disaster and constantly making them realise that they could fall off that green line at any time if they're on it or they're not on the green line but you can put them there. It's about creating tension and too many salespeople, the blind spots for for companies, not just selling, but leadership, is that I've got to get up and give the staff a talk. I've got, you know, I've got to go and have a phone call with that customer. You know, let's have a chat and a coffee. And no, how about we map out a blueprint for how we're going to make this happen? I think one of the other blind spots that a lot of people, particularly in sales, have is that complexity makes you look smart and clever. Yeah, but you should never be the smartest person in the room. 
because then what you end up doing is creating barriers and walls. This is one of the reasons why I love your work, because it lowers the walls of resistance, because it makes clear that what's possible, and it helps you to co-develop a clear roadmap to a better future and the desired outcome. And that's the really clever part. But doing that is difficult. It's really difficult work making the complex simple. What are the challenges that you face in being able to translate all the complexity and all the noise and all the peripheral stuff that people insist on burdening their prospects with and uh, the salespeople insisting on using, I'm always minded of um, that scene in The Meaning of Life, one more wafasin mint. Um, <laughs> yeah, they've just got to give one more feature and the whole sale dies on its ass because the prospect just goes from you know, seeing the possibility to glazing over. And uh, I think what's really important is that we get out of the way of the yeah. prospect and their decision to buy. Yeah, yeah. I think the challenges are, I can sort of summarize that in three parts. The first challenge is the salesperson's insecurity. <laughs> and, yeah, and <laughs> you know, most salespeople, and they might not like hearing it, but, well, maybe I shouldn't say most, but a lot of salespeople are fundamentally insecure. No, most are. Yeah. And the strategy that I see so many using is that I'll blind them with the science. You know, I'll, I'll blind them with information and data. And that kind of leads into this belief that uh, more information equals, uh, you know, a higher price or a better premium. And it's actually quite the opposite. You know, if you're, um, well, if I go to the example, if you're selling a high-speed car, truck and people carrying ferry, that you're going to you know, charge $120 million to build for a company, how do most people sell that? You know, they send their marine engineers who have been converted to salespeople to meetings over a period of time with the buying company. And in that market, there's only about five major ferry companies in the world that buy ferries. So yeah. if, you don't, if you don't have those clients, you're, you're not in the market. Just make it look like it's really complex and you need us. That sounds right until somebody else comes into the market and in seven to 11 minutes shows the buyer a model that lets them know that they will get the result from you. And as as soon as the the moment the buyer says, how come no one else has ever explained this that simply to me before? You know you just made the sale. And so I think complexity is masking this insecurity. The second kind of movement or issue that I see coming up is it's just really bloody hard work mm-hmm. to, to unpack and get to core simplicity about something. I mean, it, it challenges you to dig deep into your own understanding about it. And there's this um, concern about maybe looking a bit stupid or feeling a bit stupid. But it takes time and it's really hard work to dig deep into something and, uh, and, and get it back to its root simplicity. And then the third thing is, and there's a lot of ego. What's the real thing we call people out on? It's probably ego. But the third thing is the first thing that is usually lost in a sale is context. But context gives everything meaning. The moment you move from context, which is the big picture of why would you do this, to, you know, through the concept, here's how we make it happen, 
to the detail, the content, well, here are the steps. As soon as you get to, to, to the content, the steps, people, people just burrow into that like a contagion. Context gets lost and the customer forgets why they're even talking to you. Every sale should have context smack bang in the middle of every part of the conversation. And we have and we choose to put the context right in the middle of the model. Right, well, right in the middle of the model is the big reason why you should do this. This fits really neatly with a philosophy that Michael Brody Waite talks about. He says that leaders, and I think I believe salespeople as well, have four masks. One is that they hold back their unique perspective. Yeah. They hide their weaknesses. They don't know when to say no, and they don't surrender the outcome. And part of the problem here is attachment. The Buddha had it right thousands of years ago when he said attachment is the root to all misery. And what I see time and time again is an attachment to talking about the things that people are comfortable with, that they think are their strengths, their superpowers. They're afraid of showing their weaknesses. And as a result, they come across as being utterly inauthentic, uh, self-serving. And what the customer is doing is they are renting an outcome for as long as it delivers the result that they need, which is their better future. And I've just come from 17 years of teaching people pain, pain, pain equals pound, pound, pound. Um, you know, no pain, no sale. Now, I understand that, and I agree with it to a point, but no one buys moving away from pain. They want to move away from pain, but they want that better future. Yeah, correct. And unless you're able to help them visualize that yeah. and see the clear roadmap of how they're going to get there, um, they don't need the detail. They just need to uh, understand. And the salesperson's job is the transfer of emotion. It's the emotional uh, conviction that we can go from A to B to C to D to Z, and there is a better way. And Bob Master talks about this, that people rent your outcomes. Um, Mm. I I might have an Aston Martin, and I love it, and I utilize it all the time. If I've got to go 200 yards up the road to buy a pack of of biscuits, uh, I'll go in the car because I love it that much. Then my circumstances change. So my adoption and my utilization are through the roof, and I'm happy with this car. But my parents fall sick, and now I have to take my parents into my home. Mm. And my Aston is no good for ferrying my parents around. So now I've got to buy myself one of those vans with sliding doors and disabled ramps and all that kind Uh of stuff. So my outcome has changed. And the, the thing is that so often... Salespeople are fixated on the wrong end of the problem. Ah. They think it's about quality. They think it's about brand, all of this stuff. And it's, most of that is only relevant if the customer thinks it is. And usually, they don't, I mean, there's so much in what you, there's so many layers to, you know, what you just outlined. I mean, that very first one about, you know, the age old and quite tired thinking about, you know, find the problem, aggravate the problem, then put a solution in front of them and, and make the sale, pain, pain can cause people to buy, but they're never an appreciative customer. They're a captive. They're, they're, a, they're a conscript customer because pain drove them there. You know, a promise of something better is far more powerful. Now, you can, you can only 
you really can only exert pressure on somebody in two directions. You push them down or you lift them up. In the marketing and sales dialogue that is pain-driven, you're pushing people down. And people don't make good decisions when they're trapped by pain. You know, as you know, I had a really severe back injury last year. I was not the best person to make the decision about should I have surgery or not right in the midst of all of that. Now, I was in extreme pain and the surgeon saying, yeah, we can do the operation and take the pain away. And, you know, everything in me is going, well, let's go for it. But there's a whole lot of other conversation to have about are we risking wheelchairs here and all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Fortunately, my wife was with me and then my, you know, I said to him, I was in Sydney and we live in Perth. I said, can I ring my older brother? And he said, why? Is he a doctor? And I said, no, he's a mergers and acquisition lawyer, but I reckon I have a view on this. <laughs> and I get on the phone and Michael goes, well, I don't see what your alternate product is. I mean, it was a very pragmatic, yeah. helpful conversation. But And Dan Sullivan often talks about, you know, stop, stop, you know, stop, driving people's fear and elevate them instead, show them what's possible. But I think the other thing that, you know, some of the other things that you know, come out of, uh, you know, through that commentary that you just uh, you just went through is it's, 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 it's a, you know, selling came from the modern sales kind of tactics and strategies came from the old foot in the door vacuum cleaner salespeople door to door where the sole of the shoe was wider than the shoe. So that if you did put your foot in the door and they shut it on it, it wasn't going to hurt your foot. And that was all pressure, pressure, pressure. And so all the techniques were pressure-based, 101 closing techniques and all this sort of stuff. And just accept a certain amount of returns, asking for refunds and calculate that into the, into the equation and everything. My question is, does that create great clients? Because today's world, and especially 2020, you know, how did 2020 change the world of selling? People have reconnected to profound value. People aren't, people are seeing through perceived value. What an interesting term, perceived value. How about real value? You know, and 2020 is kind of, what happened to all the social media influences in 2020? They just disappeared. 2020 turned people back to profound and deep value. And that's not something people are skilled at selling because you you have to connect to now most business founders started the company because they had some level of intuitive genius about a thing that they could bring to the market they managed to sell it because they had the intuitive genius they could talk about it and then the company grew and they had to get other people to sell so they taught them closing techniques but those salespeople never actually captured the intuitive genius and all we do with models is we organize the genius so everybody can talk about it. And it moves from being the founder's genius to the company's genius to solve profound challenges for people in a positive way. It's just a, it's a new world of selling now, you know. I love that. And I'd like to build on it as well, because I think you've touched on some really important fundamentals when it comes to why people buy. I, I do a lot of work with a client and a partner of mine called Gap in the Matrix. Yeah. And uh, they've answered this fundamental question, which is, why do human beings not understand other humans? Wow. And it's a really tough, tough question. Now, the challenge with it is that we don't even understand ourselves. And if yeah. you know, my favorite poem is Philip Larkin's This Be The Verse. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They don't mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had 
and they add some extra just for you. And they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. Philip Larkin, this be the verse. And it, it sums up the human condition because we see these beliefs and values and the patterns of behavior being yeah. passed on generationally. And you see it in sales. There are dozens of generations of sales because for the last 300 years, the way management thinking has shifted since the late 1700s yeah. is that human beings are a utility to be exploited. And yeah. you treat people like a machine because you wanted them in your factories or you wanted them as cannon fodder. Yeah. And the education system that Bismarck put in place was designed uh, for exactly the same purpose. And uh, you know, you, what, what you end up with is this dehumanization and yeah. in marketing, in sales, in management, it's exactly the same thing. And you've touched on this, saying that people have reconnected to profound value versus perceived value. As a seller, as a marketer, as a leader, as a manager, you need to reconnect with that profound value. And right. if you are not doing that, then what you create are the conditions for an adversarial relationship. And I fundamentally believe that what 2020 and COVID has done is it's forced people to make a choice. Either we can continue to do what we've always done and eventually grind ourselves down into extinction. Mm. And the other thing that we can do is we can actually start to partner with our customers. Walk out of the goal mouth. And it's us and them against their problem, creating a better uh, future and co-developing it with them, having their fingerprints all over it and helping them achieve their vision. Because yeah. this is about service. And I, th I think fundamentally, uh, few salespeople really understand the true essence of what service is. It's not servitude. Mm. It's helping other people achieve their outcomes. And in turn, you end up getting paid and you get your needs met as well. But mm. most organizations have been driven away from that. And one of the areas, maybe we don't have time to go into it today, but I fundamentally believe the vultures, the gamblers, the speculators, oh, that yeah. masquerade as investors create the environment and the culture where people are driven to be transactional. They focus on making the sales so that they can hit their monthly or quarterly quota. Managers are put under pressure to manage the numbers because the church of finance runs everything. And it dehumanizes the whole process. And I, I just find it sickening. I, I'm, I'm on a, um, a mission. Uh, I have four big, hairy, assed, audacious goals. One of which is to make sales a force for good. The mm -hmm. second is to rethink and rework the entire marketing operation because most marketing is utterly wasted, invasive, yeah. interrupted, and pointless. The next is to basically cut the legs out of the investment community because they have no right to do what they do. They destroy more businesses. And you only have to look at the human cost of all the salespeople who are burnt out and the companies that fail. The fourth one is to take eight companies to a billion dollars over the next eight years and do so by making them destination employers where people want to work, 
where customers are loyal and you prospect for customers that are going to be customers in 15 years' time, mm -hmm. not so you can hit your number and sell yep. them anything, just so you can uh, hit your own quota, and where you form partnerships with your customers so that you co-develop your products and your services so that you help them achieve their goals. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, it's a big ask. <laughs> you know, make the, make the customer the hero. And um, it's interesting, I have two kind of driving motivations that I, you know, I don't talk about them all the time, but certainly in my corporate consulting career, I would usually start a conversation with a CEO about my, you know, my real driving force is to rehumanize the corporation. So if you're asking me to come and do a project with you that's about how many people can we make redundant, I'm not your guy because that we know redundancy doesn't work. You know, in five years' time, you'll have the same number of people back again, but there was carnage along the way. You talk about your people are your greatest asset. And just tell me where you place them on the balance sheet. You're using an industrialised financial model and they're an expense. Have you ever they really the are an asset. Club? Pardon? Have you ever seen the Dilbert cartoon? The manager comes in and says, people aren't our greatest asset. They come ninth after paper clips. <laughs> it's just so Dilbert was so insightful, you know. But but if you're serious about that, you'd figure out how to count them as an asset, right? There's a great piece of work from James Carsey, C-A-R-S-E, called Finite and Infinite Games. And um, Simon Sinek has recently released a book called The Infinite Game, which is based on Carsey's work. And, you know, a finite game has a fixed field of play, a set number of players, defined rules, and you keep score and everyone knows how to win. Or, you know, everyone knows, you know, how to determine who the winner is. An infinite game has no uh, defined field of play. The rules are unclear. It has an un unlimited number of players. And in the finite game, the purpose of the game is to win. In the infinite game, the purpose of the game is to keep the game going. And you look at world superpowers. Is China playing a finite or an infinite game? A countries like America and Australia playing a finite or infinite game. Now, you can't beat an infinite player with a finite game. Absolutely. Because they're not even they're not even trying to beat you necessarily, you know. And it's just and a lot of selling. And so a lot of selling and the metrics placed around salespeople and the monthly target and the incentives is finite game thinking. Absolutely. And so the sale is about how do we win? But if the purpose of the game is to keep the game going and have that customer be a customer for life, how does that have to change? And I've been talking a lot lately about the idea of buyer safety. If the buyer is safer with you, if the buyer feels safer with you than they do without you, the sale will take care of itself. In fact, they'll reach a point where the safest thing for them to do is to commit to you and buy from you. I love and, that. And yet, you know, I mean, a little part of what I want to do is, I, I, I mean, you said, you know, sales is a, as a force for good. My version of that is I think free enterprise is the most powerful force for good on the planet in the hands of the right leaders. And I have a hidden agenda to make sales the most respected function in a company by both yep. the customers and, and the internal employees. But sales has been thrust as this push and shove, full contact sport. Actually, put your foot, atrocious things we've heard said over the years, you know, like the sales, the car sales manager says to his salespeople, there's a you know, there's a 50-pound note or a $50 note flapping around in the breeze out there going, you put your foot on it. And he's really saying, oh, there's a prospect on the forecourt. There's an extra 50 bucks in it for you if you make the sale. That's a finite game mentality. And, you know, selling today for companies to be future-proof. So how do you become future-proof? 
you play an infinite game. You can't future-proof through technology because it will keep evolving. How do you future-proof your business? You play an infinite game. What does that mean? You collaborate, you partner, you make the buyer feel safer with you than they are without you. You show up differently. You teach your salespeople to sell counterintuitively to everything we've done in the past. The number one currency in selling must become transparency, which is far from what we've ever had in the past. And how do you do transparency? I'm not talking about show them all your cost structures and everything. I'm talking about draw a model. Let them see it rather than have to, you know, we have this term gift of the gab. What is that about? Some slick talking person that can almost trick you into the purchase. How about you draw them a model, a blueprint that says, this is exactly how this is going to work and what you're going to get and let them see it. Let them actually pick it up and turn it over and look at it. I, you know, I think, I, think, I think there's a, and I'm seeing more and more evidence of the emergence of uh, every time I talk about biosafety, if it's in a conference or one-to-one, there's almost this, oh, of course. And it's, you know, it's just, and, and there's lots of, and there's levels of biosafety in the sales process. So you want to turn marketing on its head, right? From a biosafety perspective, what should marketing do? Marketing should allow, allow your prospects to get a deep, profound understanding of the value that you deliver and the genius behind it whilst they have the safety of anonymity. They don't have to put their hand up. They can find that out without having to talk to you. And then when they think, oh, there's something in this for me, and they put their hand up, you know, give them the safety of numbers. They want to sit at the back of the class for a little bit. They're happy for you to know that they're there. You know, my daughter went on, my 25-year-old daughter went on a, you know, a comparison site for health insurance. Yeah. She was doing some adulting. These young people call it adulting. You know, my goodness yep. me, what a term. And um, you had to put your mobile phone number in to look around the site and 10 minutes in, her phone rings. And this guy says, oh, I'm from Meerkats, compare the market. I just thought I'd help you. We find it's a lot easier, you know, and I know you're looking at health insurance. You know, I wonder if you could tell me, when was the last time you went to hospital? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Where's the safety in that? She, yeah. she had put her hand up and said, oh, it's okay for me that you know I exist, but I still want safety in numbers. I'm no longer anonymous, but I'm a person on your website that's given you my mobile phone number, but give me a bit of space, right? Eventually they'll go, I'm happy for you to talk to me one-to-one. Now I need, you know, safety in evidence and confidence. And eventually the safest thing for me to do is commit to you. But we're still stuck with some very old style selling about get out in the boots and, you know, storm troop and like. Just, the numbers game. Yeah. Who, who on God's earth really believes that sales is a numbers game apart from a dinosaur who's an idiot? You see this in marketing. How many times have you been asked for an email address mm. to get something, uh, some item of value, and you give them the email address that you never look at and you only provide them with a shitty right. spammy email address? All the crap goes in there. So they've just spent 20 bucks to acquire useless data. Marketing is crazy. Sales is crazy. Leadership is crazy because they are so fixated on looking at the wrong end of the problem. If your wow. intent is to help and serve, then you create the conditions for safety. But if your intent is to try and dip your hand in someone's pocket and turn them into a product, why would they trust you? 
Yeah. And crazy. If, if you're playing a finite game, I would encourage anyone that's listening to the podcast to really actually dig into that work. It, it'll make sense as soon as you start reading about it. If you're playing a finite game, time is your enemy because you have to win now. If you're playing an infinite game, time is your friend and patience and patience is, is a power. You know, you give people your spam email that you give. That's a buyer wanting the safety of numbers. Yeah, you got my email address, but you don't really have any way of contacting me. They're protecting themselves. But if the customer automatically knows from every communication they have with you and with the way you show up in your marketing that you have a fundamental respect, you know, to be respected, you must first be respectful. And and in the marketing and sales world, that is often not the case. I've even heard people saying, you know, to make the sale, you've got to be, you've got to be a bit of a, a, you know, you've got to be a hunter. And then once we've got the business, we can love them. That's an interesting way to, to make a sale from my perspective. And I just, I think that we're right on the cusp, I think, where people will start to call out more and more. And we're seeing it just in the way the regulators are behaving too, around, you know, representation of, of promise and all of those sorts of things. And I think we're on the cusp of a real movement in selling where this more authentic, trustworthy level of selling can occur. A a sale, when somebody is looking to buy something, they're exploring what's available out of interest to help them with something that they're trying to tackle. But when they choose you, They're actually buying you for insurance to make sure they don't make mistakes of the past. Every sale is an insurance policy. The customer must feel safer with you when they sign that deal. Every sale is really, they're buying you for insurance. If I buy from you, I probably won't make the same mistakes of the past or be failed uh, by people like like I have in the past. And I think we're really on the cusp of a shift in the way buyers buy around that as well, you know? Well, I... I actually, I'm going to challenge you on that because I think buyers have always bought in a particular way, but salespeople and uh, vendors and marketing have tried to overlay their approach. Oh, that's if you look at the way uh, Bob Mester and Gap in the Matrix talk about this, there's a zone of consideration. And in Mester's model, he talks about making space initially. Now, a lot of people particularly when they're making an important big purchase, will make space for an idea months or even years before. And then they move into passive looking. So they mm. trip over a piece of content or they see an ad or something like that. And they, you know, they're curious. Then as the problem starts to evolve or they start to feel the pain a little bit more, they can move into active looking. And now they're moving from that zone of consideration into the zone of temptation. And Mm. in the zone of temptation, they are actively looking and then they start to create trade-offs. So they start to compare four or five different options. And Amazon has done this beautifully in terms of the compare and contrast of different products. And so you make trade-offs and you look at the different features and functionality and capabilities and benefits and payoffs and whatever. And then you end up buying, and the insurance policy is the decision to buy the thing that you have ultimately compromised on. You don't get it all. You get the bits that you want, and you discard the bits that you don't, or you're willing to do without. Then, 
once you've moved into the purchase, then you're using it. Now, if it fails to deliver the promise that's been given, then you stop using it because you don't, you stop renting the outcome. But if you continue to rent the outcome, uh, you then turn that into habit. Demand Side Sales by Bob Mester, M-O-E-S-T-A, and uh, Gap in the Matrix. I've, I've got a, several podcasts with Martin Lucas, their founder. Fascinating. Mm. Uh, and when you combine the two of these, this is the reality of how people actually make important purchase decisions. Yeah, if you're buying I, I... a Mars bar, uh, you go in and whatever whim takes you or whatever your habit is. But this syntax is really important. And if you don't understand that, and this is one of the reasons why I love what you do in terms of talking about the choreography, because if you don't choreograph the message and the model in line with that syntax, then it creates dissonance. And then you, you create the conditions for objections and uh, walls of resistance come up. First of all, I think there's some truth in what you're saying. When I say I think people are buying differently, really what I'm getting at is I think people are no longer willing to put up with the way they've been sold to in the past necessarily. They're more willing now to say, well, you know, I'm, I'll buy in my own time, thanks very much. And so people will continue to buy in their own time, and I think that will happen more and more. But when, you know, one of the things that we, when we started building these really powerful, these psychologically powerful visual models to sell with, we had the models and particularly the, you know, the flagship model, the genius model that you're familiar with. You know, we can capture a company's entire genius in one model that takes minutes to walk through. But every time I did it, people would say, but when you walk through the model, it's so much more powerful than when we walk through the model. And I had this realisation one day. I'd grown up as a young adult in musical theatre and I'd <laughs> kind of learned about choreography and timing and movement. And I had also, as a keynote speaker for conferences, paid a magician to teach me magic so I could use illusions as a part of a keynote to trigger curiosity in the audience because I want them curious before I start delivering the key message, right? And then that kind of led me into comedy, and I, have, I, 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 I don't do comedy, but I studied comedy. And all of those things, a great screenwriter, a great playwright, a great comedian, a great magician is framing everything they do from the audience's perspective, not their own. Absolutely. People probably can't see me because it's a podcast, but if you put your arms out at about 45 degrees from your shoulders on both sides and stand on a stage as a magician, the audience can't see anything behind that. So everything behind that is open slather. <laughs> you know, you can, so if you've got a coat on, you've got, you know, shoulder to floor space to work in if you can pop a fake arm in one of those sides you've got a free hand to do the work behind your back you know you've got the back of your hands if you're clever enough with with your fingers so you can tuck cards in the back of your fingers and the audience can't see it It, it, you know the illusion just has everything to do with what the audience is able to see and so you enter the conversation that they're already having Absolutely. And elevate that. But most marketing and sales is intruding on their conversation and trying to stop it and force your conversation on them. With the models, we want to create a model that they fall into. You know, as soon as they step into the model, they've made the purchase. We, we, in fact, we, one of the things that, and, and uh, this keeps getting, you know, people challenge me on this all the time, 
you know, the comment I keep making is stop selling and sell more. So stop selling and start facilitating. Yep, I agree. Stop selling and start yeah, facilitating and you'll sell more. Forget terminology like consultative selling and solution, just facilitate more, you know. And so we we encourage people to use a visual framework, a model, fill in spaces on a model. Ask the customer, you know, what would the intersection of those two circles be for you if that was to happen? If you were to get circle A and circle B, what would the intersection of those two circles mean for you? And they go, blah, blah, blah. It might not be the label that you've put on there, but if it was me, I'd use their label. Because if they build half Absolutely. the model, they've just bought it. They can't disagree with what they've helped to build. People never argue with their own data. No. If you get the customer's fingerprints all over the solution, yeah. then yeah. your competition does not stand a chance. No. Because you have developed it with them. Yeah. I, I did an interview with Salesforce in December uh, 2020. And um, what was really interesting was the speed the fastest product development comes from talking to unhappy customers. But <laughs> if you speak to your unhappy customers, uh, product development is 600% quicker wow. than if you speak to happy customers or customers who are just okay with it. So go wow. out and court the difficult conversations. Challenge yourself. Be vulnerable enough and courageous mm. enough to go out and court criticism. Understand that um, vulnerability is a strength. I don't know the answer to your problem at the moment. Let's work on it together. And this is why I have a real problem with the training industry generally, because they are so fixated on teaching technique. Mm. Technique without the right intent and without the understanding of another human being is just technique. It's like giving someone a bludgeon. But if yeah. you teach the technique in conjunction with genuine surgical empathy, where you really get to the heart of what their problem is, what outcome they are trying to achieve, why that matters to them, then the technique is like a razor and you can go cut down the, uh, the length of the yeah. hair with it. It's that precise. Yeah. Simon, unfortunately, we've come to time now. I'm Deeply disappointed. I'd love to have you back. Would you be willing to come back for another? Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. You've got some interesting friends. I got to go and look at uh, you know gap in the matrix and stuff. <laughs> I'll introduce you. To. And in fact, we'll get you onto the same show. I think that would be really fascinating. You and yeah. Bob and uh, Martin. Tell me this: you've got a golden ticket. You can go back and you can advise the idiot Simon, age twenty three. What yeah. choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have probably ignored but would have been worthwhile? I think, you know, I'm very big on context. I'm not sure how I would frame it for him just yet, but I'd, I'd be trying to give him the message to look for the context, you know, in every conversation and interaction you have with people. And I think that at age 23 I was playing some really serious competitive sport and you know, representing the state in, you know, in my chosen sport and pushing pretty hard career-wise and things like that, I think I would share a lot more insights with him about this is a long game, son. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're going to be at this a long time and um, nothing is as serious as you think it is right in the moment <laughs> and yet everything is as valuable as it could possibly be right in the moment. Nothing is as serious as you think it is but everything is as valuable as it could possibly be. But you'll determine that, whether it's serious or valuable. And you either have a win, a loss, or a lesson 
make sure you get wins and lessons. Absolutely. And, and don't worry about the losses. So, I, you know, I, I was pretty confident. I knew how to train and perform and things like that. I think I'd be, you know, I'd share that infinite game thinking, and this is, you know, it's, 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 it's a long game and what you think is important in one moment just isn't. You know, our girls are all adults now. Mm-hmm. Our youngest is 25. And I look at parents of, you know, first year, grade one students in school, and they're so bent up about all sorts of things. So-and-so won't play with my little boy or my little girl. And I feel like saying to them, it's just not that important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I've realised that wisdom is wasted on the old and youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, it's exactly true. Simon, it's exactly true. Simon, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I would love to have you back for a number of conversations yeah, uh, because be I think really the audience will derive enormous value. If you haven't checked out Simon's YouTube videos, make sure you do. He's all over uh, YouTube and uh, his mental models are breathtaking in their e- effectiveness, but also in their sophist- simple sophistication. They will make you look like a genius without trying, but you have to put a hell of a lot of work in to get yeah. there. So how can people get hold of you? The best way really is to go to uh, modelsmethod.com. We have some short video content on there as well. They can, they can view that there. and It's brilliant. Yeah. There's also a, um, just as an example of a model, uh, I can shoot you. I'll just pop, pop in the chat and you can, you can use it uh, however you want to, Marcus. But one of the models that people like uh, the most is how we use the bell curve to negate price-based shopping. It's a really simple use of the bell curve, but it just it takes it takes lowest price off the table immediately. And um, there's just a link there. You know, people will be giving us their email addresses to get to it. But once they've done that, they'll get a little video of me explaining it. A seven-point checklist on how to actually customize the bell curve that we're using for their product or service. And uh, you know, just just some quick tips around it, but. The power of models is, you know, can do that sort of thing. A great model can completely eliminate price in the conversation, for example, and take to a really different partnership. I love your commentary about partnering with the customer. We don't typically think about that. We think about partnering with other suppliers and vendors, but partnering with the customer is a powerful, powerful concept. I mean, that is, you know, I, I mean, I, when you said that and I started thinking about biosafety, imagine if you partner with every customer and create an enormous buyer safety, no one would ever, ever be able to get that, that customer from you. you know, it, and it you need to partner with the customer, you need to partner with your internal team and yeah. you need to partner with your partners. Yeah. And if you do that, then you have an operation that really is out there to serve everybody. You create win-win-win outcomes for everybody. Everybody gets rewarded, recognized for their contribution and the customer gets the outcome that they want. They give you fabulous feedback so that you can keep developing and you stay relevant, timely, and valuable. I think there'd be a whole conversation about, I think you'd have some um, real insights in a conversation about, well, I know you would, about partnership. It's probably another whole conversation, but I suspect, you know, you might have a last comment about that, but I suspect that a lot of people really don't know what partnering really means. Absolutely. Well, that's the subject of a big conversation. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Simon, we've got to wrap up. Thank you so much. I genuinely appreciate this. This is wonderful.
Pleasure. My pleasure, Marcus. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation insightful and useful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And make sure you give Simon your real email address because there's some real value that follows on, by the way. Now, many of you will probably be wondering what I do. So I'm a fractional chief revenue officer for technology companies that are looking to scale at an average of around 200% compound per annum with a view to exiting, but having created a business with strong foundations, lifetime customers, and completely engaged employees. So if you're interested in developing that kind of business, then do get in touch. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.